As soon as somebody is pregnant, there is an expectation of almost full and complete sacrifice of the self. The full self that may or may not have ever even existed to folks beforehand. And we see this in the way that we talk about mothers and pregnant people. Our society is geared towards directing people away from that person's humanity. So I was not planning on dropping the episode you're about to hear until much later this summer. But within a few days of having recorded the conversation you're about to hear, a draft opinion on the overturning of Roe versus Wade was leaked to Politico. Nearly every single woman I know has had a pregnancy scare at least one time in her life, which also conversely means that nearly every single man I know has been part of a pregnancy scare, whether they were made aware of it or not. And if you've ever been in that position, you know the feeling. And you likely also know how important it was in those moments during that scare to know that you were in charge of whatever decision needed to be made next. We are now living in a time where that freedom, that autonomy is very likely going to be taken away. I originally had the conversation you're about to hear recorded because I wanted to talk to an expert about the language that we use around reproductive freedom and abortion. How are we talking about it? How should we be talking about it? And I wanted to ask those questions so that we could start to reverse this alarming trend of taking this very fundamental right away from pregnant people. And while my intention remains the same, there is a new urgency to this episode. We need to talk about abortion. We need to talk about women's health care. We can't keep avoiding it. Avoiding it is what has allowed this moment in history to happen. And to help us have this conversation is Dina Montemarano, Research Director at NARAL Pro-Choice America, where she leads messaging, opposition, and disinformation-focused research on abortion access and the anti-choice movement. Prior to NARAL, she worked on Senator Warren's and Vice President Harris's presidential campaigns and at Global Health Strategies, where she managed global health communication programs for the Gates Foundation. She has a BA from the University of Notre Dame and a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. Dina is a wonder human, and she was incredibly kind and patient with me when I had like a full on cry during this conversation. She's really quite amazing. So get comfortable and let's dive in. Okay, so let's start from just the basics, Dina, which is explain your specific role at NARAL. Certainly. So I am the research director at NARAL Pro-Choice America, and I run our messaging research, our opposition research, and our work on disinformation. So we study the anti-choice movement, what they're doing, what their strategies are, and we work to understand how folks on our side can best fight back, how we can talk to one another about what we stand for, how we can build a coalition of really strong support for reproductive freedom. So what an interesting job during what is a really interesting time, because I think messaging around reproductive rights has always been fascinating to me because correct me if I'm wrong, Dina, 
Like I heard a stat recently where the majority of Americans are actually in favor of abortion staying legal. Yes. Is, where did I 10. hear that? What is Eight that? In 10. That has been corroborated by multiple national polls. The vast majority of Americans support people having the freedom to make that decision. They do not want abortion to be illegal. Mm-hmm. And we see that over and over. What's sad about it is that the vast majority of Republicans that I know in my life are in favor of reproductive freedom. But the party has been just completely hijacked by this really powerful, really noisy minority. It's insane. You know, you got to hand it to him if you take off your outrage hat for a minute, which is very hard for me to take off. Very hard for me. Very hard for me to take off. You got to hand it to him. They've been dogged and successful on something that's, it seems like impossible odds. So I find that kind of amazing. So if you think about the messaging that has been so effective for them, and it's misinformation, but it's messaging, they've tried to cast abortion in the light of irresponsible people that won't take responsibility, right? Speak to that. What has been their most effective messaging so far? So I like to call it a potent cocktail of medical disinformation, racism, and sexism. So what they're doing is pairing medical inaccuracies with messaging that lights up and hits those dog whistles of racism and sexism. So when you hear a phrase like abortion as birth control, they're not saying something explicitly But what they are doing is turning on people's implicit biases and then really hitting them over the hammer with that same message over and over and over until we hear it all the time. And when they do that, they're, again, reaching people's amygdalas with the fear mongering. Yeah. And people either get confused and scared and turn away or their anger and fear get activated. And again, they have been perfecting how to do this for decades. Yeah. And in fact, when you look at the stats of who is getting abortions, what do those stats look like? Is there a common thread around like, well, most of the women that are seeking abortions are seeking abortions because of X. What is that? I think there's no kind of typical person. I think every person has their own unique circumstances. I think there are certainly incorrect stereotypes where people don't realize that many, if not most people who seek abortion care are in fact already mothers, right? Mm. So that's a stereotype that's out there. Wow. So I just want to say that again, the majority of women seeking abortion care are already mothers. Yes. Many, if not most. Wow. And that is one of the things that they don't want people to know because they want people to continue to make the assumptions. And what they really want to do is erase the pregnant person or the woman altogether. They do not want us to have the compassion and empathy for the person making that decision. They do not want us to consider that somebody might have different circumstances, a different life situation, and might seek whatever decision is right for them. They want to erase that person from the conversation. Yeah. God, it's so devastating when I think about it. I remember a conversation my grandmother had with me when I was a kid and she said, 
because I used to be enormously, enormously, enormously pro-life. Me too. Really? Yep. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I was pretty hardcore. Like I was on this campus students for life. I (gasps) marched in Capitol Hill on the students for life rally. I was pretty hardcore. And I want to hear your story too, because I find this fascinating, but (laughs) Even when I was super hardcore in college and very, very, very much pro-life, I still believed more in educating women about what they were doing versus making it illegal. I don't think I ever, even in my most hardest, corest moments, wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade, but I struggled because the way they had framed the issue was always, where does life begin? We don't know. So we have to assume it starts at conception. And I found that argument very hard to refute, especially even after I long had turned into being a person that valued reproductive freedom and giving people the power of autonomy over their own bodies. Even after that, I've had three children where I've landed on that framing is that life does begin at conception. I mean, I've carried three of them in this body. But what I object to is valuing a life of a growing and developing fetus the same way we value a woman who is alive, functioning and trying to survive and pay her bills. I don't think that is an appropriate weight. One deserves more weight than the other. And I don't know of a single woman, Dina, who has ever been like, yay, I get to go have an abortion or yay, I had one. It's something that we have to navigate and it's painful and necessary. So I'm going to stop talking. You tell me your story. Okay. So I want to share first a little bit about what you just talked about. And then I'll go back to my story because I think what you hit on is so important Mm -hmm. because people have complex and nuanced and extremely varied views about both when life begins and about abortion care in general. And those views range drastically. But all of those views make up those eight and 10 people who understand that people can think differently about it. Some people might say, I can't ever imagine making this decision, but I do not want the state telling somebody else what they can do. Somebody else might say, I made this decision. It was the best decision for me. I have no regrets about it. I want everybody else to have this access. Yeah. And those are all people who are on our side and who want reproductive freedom. But it's hard because there's so much complexity and nuance and we have to allow people to hold that. Yes. You have to say, it's okay. I don't know. You don't know. No lot. Like we all don't know lots of things and yeah. that's all right. What yeah. we do know is that we need to trust and support people being able to make their own decisions yeah. and not being controlled by the state in doing so. Yeah. God, it's really true. And we're not good in this country. And I think culturally, I mean, it's just humans are not good at holding that ambiguity. They're just not, they suck. Okay. What's your story? What's your backstory? (laughs) How did you come to this? So I grew up in Staten Island, New York in a really Catholic conservative family. Wow. I went to Catholic high school. There was no sex ed. There was theology class and it was in theology class where we touched on some of these topics. Wow. And I will never forget sitting in the car with my mom senior year and 
talking about how I can't imagine how anybody could ever get an abortion. I would never. And she stopped the car and looked me dead in my eyes (laughs) and was like, oh, you could imagine. You absolutely could imagine. And then she told me her story. Of course, my mom is incredibly important to me and the person I respect most in this world. And that began to open my mind and change my mind. But I still went to a Catholic university, the University of Notre Dame. I held on to my quote unquote pro-life beliefs for a while, but I had come from a community where I had only ever heard one side of it. And it wasn't until I started to learn about the world and how it worked. And then I I began to, to realize what this was really all about. Yeah. God, that is so interesting, isn't it? (laughs) It's so interesting. Okay. So let's go back to messaging though. And the thing that I found fascinating is how we are evolving the language we use to talk about reproductive freedom, that there is a movement towards evolving the messaging. Correct me if I might have misremembered this away from a pro-choice, anti-choice language and towards centering reproductive freedom. Talk about that evolution and why that's a thing or correct me if I'm totally wrong on that. You are correct. And I am so excited to talk about this. For a long time, folks across progressive movements have thought that we could communicate by sharing the facts and the truth and everybody would be on board with us. Of course, we all know now that's not how it works. We like to say that we all have amygdalas and we like to think that we are making all of our decisions with our logical kind of prefrontal cortex. But all of us are actually much more guided by our emotions, our senses, our intuition. And our fear tripwire, which is what that amygdala does best, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we needed to figure out a way to connect with people emotionally about this issue, which, you know, if you haven't experienced it or somebody you love haven't experienced, it's harder to do, right? It's not something that everybody has experienced. And so we knew we needed to talk to people on a values level. Yeah. And what we found in lots of conversations with folks across the country, across race, across age, is that when you get down to it, this issue is about freedom. It's about one of the core values of being an American. It's about the freedom to decide what your life looks like, how you take care of your body, right? How you chart your future. And what the other side is doing is wanting to control those decisions and take away that freedom for people to decide. And so even for folks who have not sought abortion care themselves, can really connect with wanting that freedom to decide what your life looks like. And they don't want politicians taking that away from them. And I think what you brought up about moving away from pro-choice to supporting reproductive freedom, folks have known, the reproductive justice movement has known for a very long time that that language does not work. And we have been one of the only movements that requires an identity of people in order to be supportive of what we're fighting for. Okay. Say more about that. Explain what you mean by that. Cause the identity thing is very interesting. And I feel like (laughs) that the extreme right has done a real good job 
using identity politics to drive all manner of insane agendas through from gun laws to everything, you know, blocking really common sense, John laws to everything else. Tell me more about what you just said. I don't mean identity politics. I think that phrase at this point doesn't mean anything because they use it to mean whatever they want it to mean. That's a great call. What I mean is the phrase, I am pro-choice and I am pro-choice and you may very well be pro-choice, but it is psychologically more to ask of people to be something than to support something. And so for folks, like we said, who very rightly so, depending on their life experience and beliefs, have a complex and varied views about abortion care. They might support reproductive freedom and not want politicians making those decisions. But at this point, the whole pro-choice, pro-life thing has become signifiers for political identity. I got and it. It prevents people from seeing themselves in the movement that they really do align with. It's kind of like, it reminds me of women that I talk to that are like, oh, I would never call myself a feminist. And I'm like, wait, say more about that. What about equal rights and opportunity do you disagree with? And they're like, oh, no, no, I'm all for equal rights and opportunity. I'm just not a feminist. And I'm like, um... What? But I think you're right. It's the identity is pejorative in certain circles. It's something they would never identify as, not because they disagree with the fundamental argument or concept, but because they don't identify as pro-choice, which makes a ton of sense. So when you message then, it's still hard to describe, okay, if you're not pro-choice, what are you? Or how do you relanguage that then, Dina? Yeah. So listen, first of all, that language is still helpful in some contexts, right? It is. It's easy. It's a label. It's useful. Most people will say they are pro-choice anyway, but we are just leaning more into saying, I support reproductive freedom. I'm a champion for reproductive freedom. I want to protect people's freedom to make their own personal decisions. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think is going to be helpful in the coming years And I have to say, and maybe you have some comment research-wise about this, but part of me feels as if this issue, how can I say this? The generation coming up now, it would seem to me, is overwhelmingly diverse culturally, ethnically. They are overwhelmingly more progressive than my generation, to be sure. I'm a Gen Xer. It seems to me that in 20 years, they're going to be scratching their heads going, how did this all happen? Oh, wait, it's the stacked Supreme Court. (laughs) It's the steady implementation of judges that'll rule certain ways on things like this. But do you think eventually this conversation is going to become obsolete because the young people are going to be like, are you freaking kidding me? Of course we need reproductive freedom. So I think that the folks who are trying to secure minority control of our government, they know, again, where the majority stands and how much stronger the majority is going to be in the coming years, which is why they are fighting like hell right now to break down our democracy, to take away these freedoms while they can. Because, and I'm no democracy scholar here, but once they do that, and once they have that stacked Supreme Court, and once they break down voting rights even more than they already have, that's when the majority of us, that will be an even stronger majority, if you can imagine, 
is still stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. And ultimately that's what, that's what this whole conversation leads us back to, which is all of this rhetoric, all of the machinations that are trying to suppress or eradicate our access to this kind of healthcare, all of it has the effect that makes it damn near impossible for women to compete economically in a capitalist society if we can't control when and how many children we have. In fact, it's funny from a messaging standpoint, I was talking to somebody who was an older male conservative who has daughters and I was saying, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> and sometimes, Can't you wait know, to hear. yeah, sometimes that's the only way I can sort of get through. It's like, oh, good. They have, at least they have daughters. I can argue this. And I was saying to him, it, cause he is a absolutely huge champion for his daughters. He would do anything for them and he wants them to have a level playing field. And I said to him, it's impossible for your daughters to compete economically. It's impossible for them to compete in business if they don't have the fundamental ability to regulate how and when they have children, because our system in the United States is not set up for women to have proper maternity leave, to have affordable childcare. I sat at a dinner with a really progressive group of people and two of the very progressive men looked me in the eye and said, look, like it's not fair. We shouldn't have to pay double salary while you guys are out having a baby. And these are really well-educated, advanced degree, liberal Democrats saying that. It's like they don't want us to have this kind of optionality control choice, but they also won't cover for us or create a work environment where we can actually absorb having children into our careers. So I think what you're pointing out is the deeply ingrained and persistent misogyny in our country and really the inability to conceptualize women. And we're speaking about, you know, women right now. So I'll talk about that as fully complex human beings. (laughs) (laughs) Like at the end of the day, there is a real struggle for people to see women as people, to see LGBTQ people as people and Trans people, you know, as, trans people. people as people, they want to make us into those. cartoon characters. And that's, listen, that's why the stereotypes and biases persist and are so easy to hit on. That's why people find it so much easier to control the decisions that pregnant people are making. This makes me think about one of the ideas that we studied when we were looking at this messaging, and that's the idea of sacrifice. And as soon as somebody is pregnant or if somebody is already a mother, there is an expectation of almost full and complete sacrifice of the self, the full self that may or may not have ever even existed to folks beforehand. And we see this in the way that we talk about mothers and pregnant people. I see it even as my friends announced that they're pregnant. We're all so, so, so excited and people forget to ask them questions about themselves. It's so true. You get subsumed by this other thing. And so that's why we talk so much about recentering the pregnant person and having people have empathy and compassion for that person because our society 
is geared towards directing people away from that person's humanity. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. That is such a <laughs> brain melter right here. I know. It's so true. That sacrifice. Dina, it's so interesting. It's like you cross this chasm from being, because I've always had the option. I've been very lucky. If I didn't want to work, I don't have to work. My partner, I fully trust him. And he's in a position where he could quote unquote provide. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I had my first baby, I only took eight weeks of maternity leave because I'm a self-employed person. What am I going to do? I'm the only person. And they, right. my clients see me. And I remember thinking I could stop working. I probably should stop working. And then I thought to myself, no, I love what I do. I'm really good at what I do. And this is who I am. And I'm not going to stop working. And I remember there was this deep shame I felt because it's like, we're okay with women working if they have to. Mm -hmm. But there's this deep undercurrent that women really shouldn't if they don't have to, because the good woman, a good mother stops working. And when you look at that narrative woven all through, it's no wonder we're struggling with reproductive freedom because yeah. fundamentally we believe subconsciously as a culture that once a woman becomes pregnant, there's a switch that gets flipped and she loses that autonomy and that ability to say, no, this is what I want to do with my life because it's what I want to do with my life. It's no Period. wonder we can't pass paid family leave and childcare and all of that. Yeah. You know who I think is doing a fantastic job of helping people subtly think about this differently? Who? Rihanna. <gasps> Say more have, about that. Have you seen her fantastic, beautiful outfits that she has been wearing throughout her pregnancy? With her glorious belly in all of its glory? So glorious, so beautiful, and so yeah. distinctly her. Yeah. She is maintaining her identity and her decisions and her art through her outfits and her and, business. That woman is a business. capitalist too. <laughs> she, I mean, she is just making people see that. Yeah. Yes, she is pregnant. She's about to bring new life into this world, but she is still completely and fully the game. herself. I think that's incredible. I do too. In fact, I feel the same way about Ashley Graham too. I think that yes. the, the new way of having children is so Yes. And instead of, oh, now I'm going to shrink and hide in my maternity smock. It's like, this is who I am. I continue to be a creative force. I continue to be this. I continue to be that. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay. Let's talk about conversations though. Having a conversation about abortion or reproductive freedom, or even just access to affordable birth control yep. is really tricky because we either want to, I mean, I'm speaking for myself personally, I have to be so caffeinated and full of so much, like I have to have already worked out, eaten a green smoothie and be fully caffeinated in, in order to feel like I have the energy to sit down and really talk with someone who has different beliefs than I do around this issue. And so I generally tend to not talk about it. I want to shy away from it, especially because so many of my friends for many years are very, very pro-life. And I, in fact, I'm very afraid for this episode to come out because there's a lot of women in my life who are very pro-life. And I'm, there's a part of me that's afraid that they're going to see me differently and not talk to me anymore after they see that I've really changed my tune over the past 20 years. So what do you say to people that are 
avoiding these conversations, Dina? What's the cost of avoiding these conversations in our everyday life? Yeah. So first of all, this is why I'm in this work, right? Because I came from a community that thinks differently. And so I'm regularly thinking about how do I have conversations with these folks who I love very much, who think very differently than I do. I think it can be very easy to avoid this conversation if you are white and wealthy and privileged. And we are reaching the point where none of us can avoid it any longer. But that doesn't mean that it's easy for people who may have different values to talk about. And before you you even go any further, that was really important what you just said, because you said people with money, people that are white, people that are privileged, we don't want to talk about it. And I was going to tell you this early and then I forgot. My grandmother once told me, because I was very stridently pro-life and she was like, okay, girl, let's see. Let's see how long this lasts. (laughs) And my grandmother said, you're white upper class. She said, you will always find ways to get what you need. But she said, if you're poor, you won't. And your life will be over prematurely if you get pregnant. And I was like, that's an odd thing for you to say, because aren't you white and upper class? And she's like, yeah, but I was born and grew up very poor. Mm. And she said, I watched my friends who had bright futures lose those futures overnight. So she's like, let's be very clear. Her message was like, the fact that you're so pro-life says more about your socioeconomic status than it does your belief system. She sounds very wise. She was incredibly wise. We've had Roe v. Wade, but attacks on abortion aren't brand new. They've been happening for decades, but they have been affecting black women, people of color, folks who are working to make ends meet or who are living in rural areas. And so it's been easier to ignore for folks. And I think that wealthy white women will always be able to get the care that they need, but that doesn't mean that it's okay to avoid it now. Right. Yeah. We've hit the end of the road here and we all got to get on board and fight for one another. And that's the thing. I think that's what the conversation, it's like we need to fight for each other's opportunities to take care of our bodies in the way we see fit. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Dina, is if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the central argument, the central concept that established Roe versus Wade that is still standing as of this podcast was around privacy, the ability for a woman to make her decisions about her health in the private conversation with her doctor, her spouse, her partners, their partners. I don't even want to use that exclusive pronoun. I'm just old and I'm learning. What do you think is evolving messaging wise? Because privacy doesn't seem to be doing it for us anymore. I don't think that most folks talk about it in the lens of privacy. I think for a lot of people, I live in Washington, D.C., and the Supreme Court to me still feels like a very abstract thing. And I'm not a lawyer. And so those legal phrases still feel very abstract to me. And so our challenge is to figure out how to translate what is going to happen in this abstract legal setting to how it is going to impact people's lives in 28 states or more across the country. As you were talking, I just had this like very Margaret Atwood moment where I was like, God, can you imagine what our country would look like if, you know, it just means that the people living in poverty 
that group of people only grows when women can't break out of the cycle of poverty because they can't get access to birth control. I feel like Hunger Games is going to be a thing with the districts if we let this continue, which is why we need to have these conversations, because when the time comes to vote, the value of having conversations is that, yes, we need to fight for one another. But what that actually translates into concretely is what? It's getting people to the polls, right? To vote for not just the president, but all of the people in between. I mean, speak to that for a second. Speak to the connection between these conversations and actually voting. And I think what you were just talking about, too, in terms of people not being able to access birth control or people not being able to marry the person they love, that is what these folks are fighting for. And a lot of it is happening at that kind of state legislative level. And that's not a level that a lot of people pay attention to and they know that. And so they can kind of pass these laws in the middle of the night without folks knowing. And then all of a sudden, you know, wake up, you wake up and your right has been taken away. And it's a lot to ask of people right now because it's a tough time. There is so much going on in the world and I get it. Like we are all exhausted, but there is going to come a time very soon where we need people to recognize and stand up and pay attention to, again, like you said, not just the presidential race, but who is in their state legislative district and who's going to protect their freedoms. Yeah. Like I think about the law in Texas, just to go on a tiny tangent where there's like a $10,000 bounty. Mm -hmm. If you can turn somebody in who's gotten an abortion or performed an abortion, am I remembering that correctly? So I think it's a perfect example of the cruelty and the levels that these folks are going to go. And I just want to say really quick that the anti-choice movement and Republican politicians right now are intent on making the false argument that they are about compromise and that they are reasonable and that they're just going to modernize or tweak these laws when really what they are heading toward are these very cruel bans and laws like Texas, where if you seek abortion care, anybody who helps you, whether that's the clinic worker or the Uber driver who brings you there or a counselor you spoke to beforehand can be sued by a stranger for up to $10,000. We call it a vigilante enforced abortion ban or a bounty hunting abortion ban. And essentially, this was a way for them to get around the current laws to stop people from seeking care without any care in the world to how cruel and inhumane that is. It makes me just hearing you say that. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting choked up because I think about the people I love who have been in that position, especially when we were in college. The people that were in that position and the pain and the terror and the fear and imagining a young woman struggling with that and then having someone sue her, it makes me sick. Like, I, I can't believe how emotional I'm getting. I just think of those conversations I had and the cruelty of it. That's the word. It is so cruel. And is there any hope for that law to be dismantled? I feel you and I hear you and I wish I could hug you right now. I know, so me much too. And this is why people don't want to think about it because it's so hard and it's so scary to actually think about 
somebody who needs care and then they find out they can't. And then all of a sudden they're trying to see if they can fly to a different state and do they even have the money and how do they find the childcare and how are they going to, you know, pay their rent this month? And they don't want us to put ourselves in, in folks shoes like that, because that's when we have the empathy and compassion that we need to really, again, stand up for one another and fight for all of our freedoms. But I can't, speak to the law in Texas. I know that the Supreme Court has upheld it, even though it directly contradicts the current law and is really just a sign of how far they're willing to go and a sign of what they're likely to do on the big case. This on summer. a broader scale. Yeah. So I don't think we can wait for the courts to save us. Yeah. Because I don't see that happening. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And so if we're not waiting for the courts to save us, what are we doing then? If you could talk directly to every person listening to this, what can we do, Dina? I think number one, as we've talked about, these conversations are hard, but they need to happen. Yeah. One of the things that we've found over and over is that people assume that the folks around them, their neighbors, their community are much more anti-choice than they actually are. So you have all of these people who support reproductive freedom who are afraid to talk about it because they think the folks around them don't support it. So I think we need to act as if we are the majority and we need to change the narrative and own the fact that we are not standing for this, that eight and 10 of us are going to be fighting like hell for this freedom. And then the second step, which you said directly and is so important is we need to get people out who have been voting to ban abortion and we need to vote people in who are going to protect access to care. I think we can start doing that, this cycle and holding people accountable. And I would love the part of me that is so angry about the cruelty just is living for the fact that we can get revenge on this horrible cruelty yeah. by voting them out. That's right. And that's why I'm starting to get involved with supporting candidates in states that I don't live in because yeah. it matters. It matters. I never, ever would have considered writing a check to a congressperson or in anybody in another state until this issue. And until they started doing stuff like what they're doing in Texas, I was like, this is all of us. Like we have to get involved in these other races Because I live in California. I live in NorCal. Talk about a bubble of reproductive freedom believing people. But it's my sisters in other states that I need to help. So I think that's another route. And also just supporting the work that folks like y'all are doing and the Center for Reproductive Freedom and Planned Parenthood and all of these things that are on the ground actually trying to help these people get the care they need in these states where it's super restrictive. I mean, those are our options, right, Dina? I mean, those are the levers we can pull. Definitely. I would say yes to supporting any organizations you can, state-based organizations, abortion funds who are going to be working like hell to get people the care they need. Yeah. And I would say supporting legislators in the key state that we're going to need to fight for access, but also in your own state, wherever that is. And even if that's California, because I think there is sometimes a false sense of security for those of us who are on the coasts. And the reality is that if millions of people don't have access to care and are going to be traveling into these other states where there are already provider shortages, we're all really tied together. Absolutely. On this and on everything, but absolutely. I think that's part of the reason why 
things happen as they have been happening in this country. We keep thinking that'll never happen to us. That'll never happen to us. And then next thing you know, there's a, there's an insurrection, you know, like you just, we have to stay awake and connected to each other and out of our comfort zone. So I just want to finish Dina by saying how much I appreciate the work you guys are doing. It's a hard thing to spend all of your waking hours focused on. And it's a really tough battle. And I'm just grateful that people like you who have energy and intelligence and compassion are focused on it. So on behalf of everybody, on behalf of the eight and 10 of us, thank you. (laughs) And is there anything else you want my listeners to know? I'm really grateful to have this conversation. You're right. It is really hard to be in this work right now. But the more that we hear from and see people who are in this together, right? Like that community is what keeps me going. So thank you to everybody for what we're all going to have to do this year for one another. Amen. Thank you. To find out how you can donate to pro-choice candidates in the midterms, there will be a link to a page on the NARAL website that will give you everything you need. And that link will be in the show notes. That's a little blurb that's in whatever podcast app you use to listen to. Also, if you're a subscriber to my newsletter, it's right in the newsletter. And one small note for reasons beyond my understanding having to do with political donations. If you use the link to the NARAL link that I provide, you have to have already donated to NARAL to be able to use the system. So, I mean, you could literally just donate a dollar, be in the system, and then you can use it to very, very efficiently and effectively support pro-choice candidates around the country. But the most powerful thing you can do, my friend, is to vote. Do not sit out the midterms. Vote for candidates that prioritize women's health. We are not a special niche interest group. Women make up half the population. So let's start voting like it. Let's start talking about it. And let's start engaging with each other on this issue as hard as it is, as exposing as it feels to talk about it. It's time. So stay strong, my friend, and shine on.